0: Hello and welcome to Tour Guide Tales brought to you by Visit Scotland. I'm Grant Stott and each week I'll be speaking to a different tour guide to hear the eclectic and often incredible rich history of Scotland through their knowledge, stories and also their experiences as tour guides. Today I'm speaking to Tanya Drawn, just one of the tour guides for Mercat Tours in Scotland's capital Edinburgh. It's worth noting that this episode was recorded from our homes during lockdown and also be aware that this episode will occasionally feature more macabre themes of torture and death as we hear about some of Scotland's fascinating but occasionally gory past. Even as someone who's grown up in Edinburgh, I'd never even heard of some of these amazing tales. And quite frankly, I think you're in for a treat. Let's hear the tour guide tales of Tanya Drawn of Edinburgh's Mercat Tours. Well, Tanya, welcome to this edition of Tour Guide Tales. Uh, nice to have you along. I'm quite excited about this one because I'm an Edinburgh lad and I'm hoping to learn a little bit more about my home city. Uh, so, so no pressure, Tanya, no pressure. But first of all, let's uh, let's start off with uh, a little introduction. Introduce yourself and tell us uh, what you do at Market Tours.
1: Yeah, so uh, my name's Tanya. Uh, so sometimes you'll see me on the mile leading tours, but uh, I'm also... Uh, training our tour guides, so and uh, and sometimes creating new tours as well. So you'll often see me with a little gaggle of uh, new guides or storytellers, as we call them at market tours, putting them through their paces.
0: So, how much did you know about the history of Edinburgh before you got involved in this?
1: I knew well. I thought I knew a fair amount. I thought I knew all the sites, but you're just you're just amazed at how much there is that you don't know about. I when I kind of started with the company and were doing my first you know tours to get to know the company, I was seeing things that I've walked past countless times and just never noticed. So I think no matter how well you know Edinburgh, there's always going to be some little secret tucked away that you you didn't know about, or you've forgotten about, or you've never noticed.
0: And that's what you do at market tours, don't you? Just for those yeah. who've perhaps never experienced it, never seen it, never even been to Edinburgh, perhaps. Uh, you, you take a group of people around some well-known parts and, and sites in Edinburgh.
1: We do, yeah. So we have a range of tours. We've got uh, history tours uh, and we've got ghost tours. We like to show people, whether they're an international visitor or whether they're a local, a little bit more of the city that they, they maybe didn't know about and, and fill them in with some historical detail. Yeah.
0: Right. Well, you're going to take me on a little tour around uh, my mm-hmm. home city and I'm looking forward to discovering more, you know, and again, like you, you know, I like to think that I know my city. I like to think I know what's going on uh, in the town, but uh, there's always room to learn more, and uh, that's what Indeed. I'm looking forward to doing today. Uh, so let's start um, with because we've asked you to cherry pick just a few favourites because obviously mm-hmm. we could we could have a podcast that la- that would last all day, uh, but we've asked you to cherry pick a few favourites, and we're going to start off with Robert Johnston, not the blues legend. But uh, Robert Johnston, a, a, a well-known figure, tell, tell us about him and his significance.
1: Yeah, so so Robert Johnston is uh, sadly remembered uh, for his death rather than uh, his life. But people are probably aware that uh, public executions uh, were carried out in Edinburgh and they always drew a, a massive crowd, but this was one where uh, the crowd took matters into their own hands, as it were. So I don't know how much you know about execution, to give a bit of background, but because we we think, don't we, that these crowds that turned up to executions, it's an incredibly morbid thing to do. Uh, and of course it was, but even the people then knew that there was a line. And the old style, as it became known, of execution was that there was a short drop and a short rope, uh, which essentially meant that the person being hanged uh, would uh, be choking at the end of the rope. And it was a very long, torturous process and people carrying this out and people watching it knew that it had to be changed, there had to be a more humane way. And so they developed a longer drop, normally with a trap door that the person would fall through, uh, and a longer rope so the neck would break.
0: So so what period in our history are you talking about here? When was this?
1: So the the change happened in the late 1700s. And uh, it wasn't too long after that that Robert Johnson uh, was sentenced to be executed. Uh, He'd committed an armed robbery. And uh, he was going to be uh, hanged in front of a crowd, as always, uh, in the year 1818, uh, on the 30th of December. And as normal, a crowd gathered. Uh, he was being executed near St Giles, and so as normal, he was taken out of his cell, and as normal, they said prayers, and as normal, they placed the noose around his neck, and as normal, they pulled the lever for the trap door to fall away. But then things go abnormally, and the trap door, for some reason, doesn't work properly. And Robert Johnson is left with his toes on the trapdoor teetering. And that means he doesn't have the length of the rope or the length of the drop. And and he's choking. And and this massive crowd is watching. And the officials are all watching and they don't know what to do. They all just kind of freeze. But the crowd, the Edinburgh mob, as we call them, uh, very quickly turn. And there's cries of murder and they start picking up stones and throwing them at the scaffold and none of the officials know what to do, and now they're being hit by stones, so they just start to retreat, and the the mob gets more and more angry, and they throw more stones, some of which, of course, are hitting uh, Robert Johnson to add to his torture, Uh, and then the crowd decide, no, they have to do something about it, so they rush forward. Some of them grab hold of him to try and hold him up, and then somebody cuts the rope, apparently with a medical scalpel, and Robert Johnson collapses to the ground, and then, you know, the crowd obviously haven't thought this through, so they They pick him up and they carry him over their heads and they run up the Royal Mile heading towards the castle, going where, they don't know, but then they meet some officials. And so they turn round and they head down the Royal Mile and then they meet more officials, more constables. So they just uh, place Robert Johnson's body on the ground and all just kind of disperse back into their houses. And the officials find Robert Johnson's uh, body, don't know if he's alive or dead. So... They do a test, they cut into his vein uh, on his wrist, and I I know, they don't bother taking a pulse, no, 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 they cut the wrist, and uh, blood pumps forth, and so, ah, okay, yes, he's alive, he's survived, so they take him back to his prison cell, and once he's recovered a bit, and he's revived, and he's able to stand on his own two feet, they take him back to the scaffold, place the noose around his neck, and this time the trapdoor works. So although that hanging was quick, the whole process is possibly the longest hanging in recorded history. Wow. So,
0: yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? You hark back to the, the Edinburgh mob, as you <laughs> call them, and it was a bit of a spectator sport back Absolutely, then. Absolutely, yeah. And, and there's, echo, there's echoes of this, I think, in, in the tour that you do, because it's obviously very popular and people are fascinated yes. by these stories and you can take them to the actual spot
1: That's right, yeah. on the
0: high street where, where it actually happened.
1: Yeah, yeah, we can stand exactly where uh, Robert Johnson's uh, scaffold was. And in fact, there is uh, a story that uh, he haunts the place. And it's a bit confusing when you stand there because it's, uh, it's, it's St Giles' uh, church. And if you look at the front of St Giles and kind of go around the corner to the right-hand side, there's a, a large staircase going up to a big door. And he said to, to float through that staircase Uh, because at the time the staircase wasn't there. Uh, So, yeah, you can literally, our guides can stand in the very spot where people apparently saw his ghost and and tell the story. And you can imagine, because obviously some of the buildings have changed, um, but some of them have changed remarkably little. So you can really get the atmosphere and imagine that, you know, these people we're talking about were looking at the same thing, standing in the same spot.
0: Yeah, it's it's remarkable our fascination with the gruesome, isn't it? Uh, it really is.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yes, absolutely. So, so that's
0: uh, that's Robert Johnston. We also have the rather mm-hmm. intriguing name. This is a new one on me, Johnny One Arm. Tell me about him.
1: Ah, okay. So Johnny One Arm, uh, you'll be glad you don't know Johnny One Arm. <laughs> uh, he people know that Edinburgh's very haunted. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, buildings that you know people associate with being incredibly haunted, but the streets are too. And for A very long time, people uh, were regularly reporting seeing this strange apparition. So first they would hear this noise behind them, this uh, like a step, but very dragging. And if they did turn round, they would see this very ghastly figure, uh, a man with only one arm. Uh, He had a pistol around his neck and he was dragging very broken legs behind him. And all of these uh, clearly identify him as John Cheesley. Uh, John Chisley uh, lived in Edinburgh, in Dalry specifically, uh, in the late 1600s. And he'd done fairly well in life. He uh, earned a good amount of money and uh, he wanted to spend it all on drink and gambling and and women. Uh, But he couldn't uh, because he had a wife and 10 or perhaps 11 children. He he could never quite remember. And uh, (laughs) whenever he came home, they were always you know, nagging at him and saying, where have you been, John? And when do we get to spend any time with your daddy? And I need new shoes, daddy. And I haven't eaten in a week, daddy. And he was just, it was too much for him. Uh, So he and his wife decide that it's time for a divorce. And they go to a divorce court because somebody had to sit and decide if you could get divorced. And the person that sits on their case is a very prominent uh, judge, Lord President of the Court of Session, uh, Sir George Lockhart. And he decides that, uh, yes, uh, these two should absolutely be divorced, and that John will have to pay his his wife £93 a year for the upkeep of the children, uh, which is a vast amount of money at the time. So John is incredibly angry, and he starts screaming in the court that uh, he will have his revenge on this judge. But I imagine that lots of people have threatened this judge over time, and he doesn't really think much of it. And uh, Occasionally, there he hears that he's made further threats, but then it appears that John Cheesley has moved down to London and George Lockhart just carries on until the following year, 1689, uh, on Easter Sunday. He goes to the Easter service. And there is a strange man pacing around at the back of the church for a while who leaves before the service is finished, and George Lockhart thinks nothing of it. Edinburgh has its characters. But after the service, he returns home. And as he's getting to the top of his close, his street, uh, there's a a figure at the top of it who kind of nods at him in greeting. And George Lockhart carries on down his close and becomes aware that this figure has followed him.
0: No, You're you're freaking me out a wee bit now, but carry on.
1: Whoa. (laughs) So he he starts to to quicken his pace, you know, just a a little bit. He's not normally a nervous man, man, but something doesn't feel right. And the footsteps behind him quicken too. And George Lockhart is, is now getting quite fearful and so he heads for his door but running and he gets his keys, and but he's a bit nervous and his fingers are fumbling and he's trying to open the lock when there's a loud bang and a sharp pain in his right shoulder. And he looks down and there's blood gushing from it and he turns around and he sees the face of John Cheesley waving a smoking pistol and laughing. And George Lockhart collapses and dies a few minutes later. A massive crowd starts to gather on the, the close and they hear that the judge that George Lockhart has been murdered. But they are no doubt as to who's done it, because John Treasley doesn't try to run away, he, in fact he's standing there bragging and waving the pistol around and laughing. So he's arrested, found guilty. But before they execute him, they decide to torture him to find out if he has any accomplices. So the tortures brace yourselves. Uh, I won't go into too much detail. I could, but I won't. Uh, The thumb screws, which you know they they put across the uh, the nail beds and put pressure on, which are pressure points, and they put more and more pressure on until it feels like they're going to burst. And the booties, which sound cute, but if you picture like a large wooden boot and both your feet goes in, and then the the, it's squeezed together Uh, wedges of wood, yeah, uh, yeah, (laughs) Uh, and so like ripping muscle, breaking bone. And then they cut off his right arm because he shot the fatal shot with his right hand and they take him to the gallows and uh, they execute him and then his body is put on public display. But it's removed a few days later. Nobody knows who by. But that's not the last that is seen of John Cheesley because his ghost then continued to stalk people on the streets of Edinburgh for at least 200 years. Until a house in Dal Rye in the mid-1800s is being renovated and they take up some of the floorboards and they find underneath the body of a man who has broken legs, only one arm, and he has a rusty pistol around his neck and they'd strung Johnny One Arm's uh, pistol around his neck just before he'd been hanged. So quite clearly I identifies him. And it's said that the hauntings then stopped. But... Uh, we always wonder at Mercat if was the other arm buried with him and if not, how much of you uh, does needs to be, you know, still kicking around and not buried properly to stop a ghost? So if you're in the closest of Edinburgh Grant and you hear that, you know, dragging step behind you then uh, <laughs> you you didn't even want to look round, trust me. <laughs>
0: I've had I've had one or two scary experiences late at night uh, in the in the <laughs> centre of Edinburgh uh and, I can and imagine. maybe I'm gonna put it down to, to Johnny one arm. <laughs> <laughs> going forward. Um, but I love this. I mean, there's so many, because of the history, because of obviously how far back this, this wonderful city goes, there are these wonderful hauntings. Uh, and there's another yes. one, uh, and in, another area of Edinburgh that I'm very familiar with, Morningside, uh, the Green yes. Lady of Morningside. Now, I've heard about the Green Lady before. Uh, tell us about her.
1: Oh, this is one of my favourite stories. So um, I'm going to take you back. I want to uh, I want you to imagine that you're at a party and the party is in the year 1712. Right? So, so try and picture the scene at the, you know, people from the highest ranks of society in Edinburgh are all there swarming around, a bit of dancing and the men are probably talking war and politics and the, the women marriage prospects. And all of a sudden, the doors open and a man walks in and the man is well known to everybody, but he has a handsome stranger with him. And so all the young ladies get excited at this handsome stranger and they're all looking at him. But then one young lady's eyes look at him and then fall to the floor disappointed because it's not who she wanted to see. And this young lady is called Betty Pittendale and it's her story that I'm going to tell you. So we're not the only ones looking at Betty at this party. Her uh, parents are looking at her too in utter despair. Uh, because Betty is going to be a spinster at this rate, because she's still not married and she's almost twenty-five, uh, oh so so things are not going well. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, they just desperately want her to, to get married. And also looking at Betty is Sir Thomas Elfingstone. Uh He is much older than Betty's forty years her senior, uh, but his wife had died a long time ago, and his own children have grown up and left home and he's very lonely and he wants to marry again and he's decided he wants to marry Betty. And her parents are thrilled uh, because he has land and title. He owns a beautiful house in in Morningside. He is much older than her and he is known to have a very quick and quite violent temper but no it's worth it for his place in society. So Sir Thomas continues to woo Betty but Really, she's reluctant because she is in love. She'd recently been to London and when there she'd met a man called Captain Jack Courage. And the two of them had only met a few times, but they'd fallen deeply in love. And then he was call, called off. He's a soldier and he's called off short notice and she hasn't heard anything from him since. And as he's a soldier, she's starting to fear the worst. And she thinks, well, perhaps, perhaps I should just marry Sir Thomas. And when she makes that decision, that's it, mind made up. That's what she's going to do with her life. She's going to become a Lady of Morningside. And uh, the marriage is uh, arranged very hastily. As soon as uh, she agrees, they possibly thought that she was going to change her her mind again. Uh, And uh, she starts to settle into her life with Sir Thomas. And a few months later, Sir Thomas gets a letter from one of his children, from his son, Uh, who's going to be able to return home for a short while and Sir Thomas is absolutely thrilled uh, because now not only will he get to see his son but his son will meet his new wife and so the two of them start making preparations to have a bit of a party for his arrival and Betty throws herself into making sure the home looks good and she looks good and on the night of the party she's very thrilled and a little bit nervous uh, to meet her son-in-law. And when he's announced John Elfingstone into the room, she walks forward to meet him. And her stomach tightens and her heart leaps into her mouth and she goes into a cold sweat and the world just falls away from underneath her feet because when she looks at John Elfingstone, she already knows him. But she knows him by the name Captain Jack Courage. So the man that she had hoped to marry... Is now technically her son. Wow.
0: wow. So the two, I
1: know, I know. So the, the two of them manage somehow to hide their reaction. Uh, but over the next few days, the two of them are in, in agony. They manage to have a few snatched conversations, and neither of them wants to betray Sir Thomas. They can't possibly be together, but living under the same roof is just going to be impossible for both of them. So John says that he will leave, and he asks Betty for just one thing before he does. Can he have just one kiss? And of course Betty says yes. And just as the two of them kiss, for the first and only time, Sir Thomas walks into the room, sees his wife and his son in each other's arms and that temper of his, it kicks in and he storms across the room in a rage and he picks up a knife and he stabs Betty in the heart and she falls dead to the ground. And his son, John, instantly explains everything that has happened and that they hadn't really betrayed him and Sir Thomas's temper disappears as quickly as it had risen and he's beside himself, he's distraught, he can't believe what he's done, that he's killed his beloved wife. And he asks his son to kill him and, of course, John says no. And Instead, he just picks up Betty in her beautiful green dress and puts her body on the bed and, and he leaves. And he comes back the next morning And he finds not only Betty's body, but the body of his father, who's killed himself during the night. So John now inherits uh, the house, but he can't possibly live in it after what's happened. And so he leaves, he rents the house out to a family. But it's not too long before the family get in touch and say that they are seeing some very strange things. They are seeing this strange lady in a green dress who walks into the room suddenly and won't say anything, doesn't respond and leaves again, and on one occasion she's seen pursued by an older gentleman, and then she throws herself on the bed and Of course, John realizes who this must be, and so he visits the house, taking a medium with him, and the medium communicates with the spirits of the house and discovers that yes, indeed, this is the spirit of betty and John asks Betty, why is she haunting the place? Why can't her spirit move on and she says that it's because. She and Sir Thomas lie next to each other in the family mausoleum, and she can't possibly be at peace while she lies next to her murderer. So she asks John for just one thing and says, Will you move my coffin, my body? And John says that, of course, he will. And so he goes to the mausoleum and he has Betty's body moved, but right next to it, he ensures that there is a gap and he makes sure everybody knows that when he himself dies, whenever that will be, that his coffin will lie next to Betty's and that finally, together, the two of them can be together.
0: What a story. Well, We were a passionate bunch back then, weren't we?
1: I know. Yes, we were. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's, a, <laughs> great, it's a great story. It's a great story.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's almost the stuff of movies. You know, it's a it's, it's sort of story you'd expect to see on the big screen. I mean, uh, but, but this, this tale, how long has this tale been, been told around Edinburgh?
1: I, th- I, you know, I think we've probably been telling these stories, you know, since the day. So we've probably tell- been telling that story since, you know, seventeen twelve. You can imagine John, you know, confessing this, th- these events to his friends and and talk, and then they- them passing on the story, and you know, whoever placed. Uh, John's coffin next to Betty's that would have become a story so over time it'll have just been yeah. passed and probably belong just to Morningside at first but of course as people move the story has grown and grown
0: Well the next story is uh, another cracker another one I am familiar with and anyone who's who's gone for let's just say a small pint or two in a certain area of yeah. Edinburgh might be familiar with the name Maggie Dixon uh, What a name, what a life and indeed what a death!
1: Oh indeed yes yeah Maggie so uh, Maggie Dixon is probably better known by another name, but we'll we'll leave that t- to the end. Um, she was well known uh, in Edinburgh, again, in the early 1700s. And she came from Musselburgh originally. She was a, a fish hawker, a fish wife. People uh, knew her very well. And she was uh, a very happy woman until the day that our story joins her, which is the day that her husband leaves her. And, you know, of course, coming from a small town, everybody knows the gossip and everybody was constantly, you know, asking her what she was going to do and how she was. And I think Maggie probably just decided that she'd had had enough of that and she was going to have a new start. And she had family down in Newcastle. So she decides that she's going to move down to Newcastle with her family and start all over again. The year 1723, so the journey to Newcastle isn't a quick one. It's a a stagecoach and the journey stops overnight in Kelso down in the Scottish borders, and they stay in a tavern. And whilst Maggie is in the tavern having a dinner and a a drink, she gets talking to the landlady there, and it turns out that the landlady could really do with an extra pair of hands to help run the place. And so the two of them get on and they come up with this plan that actually Maggie won't go to Newcastle, she'll stay in Kelso and she'll work in the tavern for bed and board. So it's, it's going very well and Maggie really likes the landlady, She She likes the tavern, she likes the town of Kelso, and she really likes the landlady's son. So much so that it's not long before she realises that she's pregnant. And that's a problem. Um, Although her husband left, Maggie is still technically married, and she doesn't know who to tell about this. She doesn't know how uh, William, the landlady's son, will react, or the landlady, or the people of Kelso. And then she thinks, well, maybe she could go to Newcastle, but uh, how will her family uh, react? And she could go back to Edinburgh, but how will they react? So instead, she can't decide what to do, and she conceals the pregnancy. She probably wore baggy clothing and and bound her stomach, but she still can't make up her mind. So this concealing the pregnancy carries on all the way through it. Um, And when the baby is eventually born, it only lasts a very uh, short time before it dies. And again, now she's stuck, she, she doesn't know what to do and she takes the body of her baby down to the banks of the River Tweed and she places it amongst the reeds. But it's not long before somebody finds it. And then, of course, people start to talk and dis- despite her trying to hide it, some people had guessed that she was, was pregnant, I suppose, and very quickly people realise that this was Margaret Dixon's baby and that perhaps by binding her stomach, she'd actually caused the death of this child. There was actually a Concealment of Pregnancy Act at the time against doing that. So she's arrested, she's taken back to Edinburgh, and she's found guilty, and she's in uh, sentenced to be executed by hanging, and that takes place in the grass market where all those pubs are now. And right at the front of the crowd is her friends who've gathered together to buy a coffin and hire a cart so they can take her back to Musselborough to bury her. She's hanged and the body is placed in the coffin, the coffin on the cart, and the friends depart from Musselborough. But they don't go straight there because, uh, of course, it's Scotland and we want to have a bit of a wait, don't we? We want to celebrate the life of the person. And so they go to a pub that is still there in Edinburgh. You can still drink in it. It's called the Sheep's Head out in Duddingston. I know it well. Yes, yeah, <laughs> they didn't play skittles. I don't think, no. but maybe maybe they did. Uh, there's a very famous skittle alley there, if you if you don't know. So they're in there and they're raising glasses and telling stories. Tim, Maggie, Tim, Maggie, and they're having several drinks. And Tim, Ma- they realise actually we do. They really need to get back to Maggie and get her to Musselburgh. So they all pile out of the tavern and they start onward to to Musselburgh. And every now and again, there's a strange noise, but they've all had a few and they're blaming it on each other. And they get to Musselboro, they they get to the graveyard and it's only then that they realise that perhaps the noises are not coming from each other. Because this kind of moaning and groaning that's a little bit muffled seems to be coming from the cart. And as they're all looking at it very quickly, sobering up, they swear that the coffin moves and they all brace themselves. And I imagine there was a lot of elbow shoving and trying to decide who was going to be the one that was going to open the coffin. But one of them does. And when they do, Maggie has colour in her cheeks. And they can't quite believe it, but she seems to be breathing. And they open up a vein, because remember, that's how we test if people are alive or dead (laughs) or not in Edinburgh. Open a vein? Uh, I know. And Maggie's alive. And they they cannot believe that this woman has survived. Uh, But she has. And... The news spreads far and wide, and people are coming to see Maggie. People are throwing about theories as to how this could possibly be. Was it the jolting of the uh, the cart that brought her back to life? You know, was it intervention? What was it? People are sending money to Maggie to try and help her. Uh, The ministers and churches are telling stories and comparing her to you know Lazarus rising from the dead. And the greatest legal minds are in a tizzy. They don't know what to do because. They'd sentence this woman uh, to, you know, to be executed. And normally, uh, the outcome of an execution is that the person dies, and, and that's not happened. So they don't know. Sh- should they, you know, should they do what they did with Robert Johnson? Should they be uh, hanging Maggie uh, again, or you know, or, or does this, she's been hanged and she survived? So perhaps that's the outcome. And then, of course, there's the question: Well, could could this be God's will? And so, of course, as soon as that's suggested, that's it, Maggie. Maggie has to be left to live her life, wow. and live her life she does. A very long, very happy one, uh, with lots more children, and uh, she is known throughout Edinburgh and beyond, but not so much as Maggie Dixon anymore, more, but as half-hang-it Maggie.
0: Absolutely wonderful. And, and as you see, you can visit the drinking establishment named after her uh, to this yes, day as well.
1: There is indeed one, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I wonder how many people drink in it and and know her story, you know. it's the, uh, Yeah, it's a, it's a fabulous one.
0: I was aware of the story, I was aware of the fact that they didn't succeed with the hanging, but I wasn't so aware mm-hmm. of the backstory to it all, so, so that's filled in a few gaps for me. And something else I love about, you know, taking a trip around Edinburgh, I took a staycation uh, a few years ago and nice. took the kids around Edinburgh and took a couple of open-top tours, and, and what, what you, you enjoy seeing is is bits of the city that, you know, you can walk past, you can drive past, you can you know, can be part of yeah. your commute for years and years and years, and you don't really take it in. There's so many eclectic, remarkable architecture. So, mm-hmm. give us a couple examples of things that people who may live in Edinburgh, who may have visited Edinburgh, who may be familiar with Edinburgh, but have just walked past and perhaps not noticed. Yeah, there's a very significant piece of a building there. Give us it, because you've, you've you've picked a couple for us.
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh, so one of my one of my favourites is. Uh, on the Royal Mile itself, uh, funny that most of mine are concentrated on the mile because that's where our tours run. Uh, but yeah. if you head down the mile on uh, the, the north side, uh, just before John Knox House in the Storytelling Centre, there's a, a street close called Paisley Close. And up above it, there is a beautiful carving of uh, a young boy's face. And there's a phrase underneath it, and I couldn't believe how long I'd uh, been in Edinburgh before I'd heard this story. So, on the night in 1861, there is this almighty uh, rumbling, and then this huge crash. Uh, the people of Edinburgh must have thought there'd been an earthquake, and they all run out of their houses uh, in the middle of the night, and the building right at the top of the street, Pace the Close, had just collapsed. And there's just rubble and clouds of dust and people run into to try and help. It turns out what has happened is that over a period of time, lots of people had been making changes in the bottom level of this building. Uh, someone had put in their doorway, uh, someone had extended their boiler, uh, and sort of knocked a hole through it, not realising that the this wall, that about three different households had knocked ho- holes in, was a load-bearing wall for a house that was probably about seven storeys high.
0: They clearly didn't apply for planning permission, did they?
1: Obviously, no, obviously not, obviously not, none of that. They just, you know, just, I, I just fancy a hole in my wall here, I'll just knock it through. And firmly enough, later, some of the survivors of this do say that they had this, the house had been making some strange creaking and groaning noises, but, you know, houses do, don't they? So, this had led to this building collapse. And so, uh, you can picture the scene, all these people, including apparently Charles Dickens, apparently he was there at the time are rushing forward and, and they're shifting all the bricks and try, trying to rescue people and they're, they're finding people who have survived and people who haven't. They're getting really tired and it is the middle of the night and it must have reached a point when they thought, you know, we just, we just need to stop for a while. When all of a sudden this group of men hear this voice coming from underneath the rubble and it says the wonderful phrase, this wee voice, a wee boy's voice shouts out, heave a lads, I'm no dead yet. And so they realise ah, oh, there's still there's still somebody there, there's still somebody there. And so they're lifting away all the bricks, and eventually they find this wooden beam and this uh, this lad who is about twelve years old, I think, stuck under this beam. And his name is James or Jamie MacIver, and he he survives. And of course, he becomes a very famous and well known uh, as a result of this. And uh, when they uh, rebuild the building. They carve a face, I don't know whether it actually is a resemblance of, he was a very handsome lad if it is, but they put in his face and they put in his last words underneath it. But when you actually stand and you read it, it doesn't He say, heave away lads, I'm no deed yet. It says, heave away chaps, I'm not dead yet. Uh, because I know it's brilliant. <laughs> what Scotsman has ever used the word chaps? And... <laughs> but uh, I love it because it has been done for tourists. You know they've anglified it because they, you know, people. I think sometimes imagine that tourism is a new thing to Edinburgh and far from it. Uh, so I think you know they were probably. Uh, I love to imagine that they were starting to carve it and someone said, "No, nobody will understand it if you put lads and you spell deed, but that way you can't. Deed doesn't have an eye in it. What are you doing?" And um, so. So I love it that you can read this wonderful story, but but you know we've we, we've not put the Scots in for the sake of the tourists.
0: Heave away, chaps! I think I much prefer heave a lads. Yeah, uh, definitely, definitely. Yeah, heave a What a, a great ads. story! Yeah. I'm going to look out for that yeah. next time I'm down the High Street. Definitely.
1: Yes, do do. It's wonderful. Wellhead, mm-hmm.
0: tell me about this. This this is going to be a new one to me.
1: Right. Okay. So yeah, th- there are several wellheads uh, still in Edinburgh uh from when we got the, the first water uh supply in, in these wells on the royal mile. It's and that happened probably late sixteen hundreds. We don't have an exact date, but they did put these wells in. Um and they drew the water came from outside Edinburgh, Comiston and Liberton, so about three and a half miles away. And uh, you know, the, there's a gravity fed system, which is all very complicated and fascinating if you're into engineering. But the bit that fascinates me is uh the wellhead itself, which is uh, in fact, just down from Pace the Close, uh, outside uh, the entrance to John Knox House, and um, people would uh, gather there. Of course,
0: is that, is that that big square? Is that that big square building that that little square? Yeah, what looks like a little yes. house?
1: Yeah, That's a, yeah, looks like yes yeah, is. Is. And yeah. yeah. So that is the well. It doesn't look like a well now because the you know the pump handle and everything is gone. It is just the the kind of um, the bricks around, if you like. So people would have gathered there, or you know, sent members of their household out to to get water, and. Uh, Apart from the fact that it's an interesting piece of history, uh, they had wooden pipes, which you can still see uh, some of, in the Museum of Edinburgh. What I love about it is that it's a bit of archaeology uh, in action. So if I take a group there, what I always try and do is get somebody to imagine drawing the water from the well. So you explain where the handle would be of the pump and they, they start to use it. And then you know, you explain that, well, the bucket of water is going to be heavy and you're holding it so you, you need to you need to brace the bucket and automatically they you know they'll put their knee underneath and they'll, they'll rest their foot on the uh, on the side of the the wellhead and then I will ask them right, okay what if you're left-handed and so they'll stop and you know they'll do everything in reverse because of course then you need to use your left hand to use the pump and what they so- suddenly notice at that point is that when you look at the wellhead uh, you can see uh, on either side little recesses where people's feet have been. Thousands and thousands of feet have stood while they've braced their buckets when they've been getting water. And on the left-hand side, it's a very, very worn-down part. And on the right-hand side, it isn't, because most people are right-handed, so therefore we'll be using the pump with the right hand and their left foot on the wellhead. So you can actually... So, you know, we say things like, how do we know that most people in history have been Right-handed, and that right there shows you. There, there, there you go, the wear and the stone shows you.
0: Physical evidence to this day, yeah. sitting on the high street. Yeah. And I, I passed that building many, many times over, over the years and always wondered what that was. I knew it was something to do mm-hmm. with the water system, but now I know the full yeah. story. I'll be looking at that differently uh, from now on. Good,
1: good.
0: Another big bit of Edinburgh's history, and there's so many stories I'm sure you could tell me with regards to witches. Uh, because there's, there's quite mm-hmm. a, a rich history of of witches certainly in this, in this part of Scotland as a, as a whole, not just Edinburgh, obviously the, yes. the wider geography. Yes. Um, but what what can you tell us th- about the witches memorial?
1: So the witches memorial is a beautiful thing, and not many people know about it. And again, it's it's quite hidden away. Um, but it's it's where it is for, for a very good reason. Um, so the witches memorial is dedicated to all the. People, because it wasn't just women, there were men, a majority of uh, women, of course, uh, that were either accused or uh, accused and executed uh, because of witchcraft, because they were accused of being witches. Um, there was a huge amount of people, a large part of it fuelled by uh, King James Sixth and his uh, passion for uh, hating uh, witches. Uh, he believed that um, they'd caused a storm that had nearly caused his ship to sink and that they'd sailed out in sieves. That in itself is a fascinating story, but you know, the North Berwick witches. But don't have time for that today. (laughs) The highest number of executions of witches took place on the Castle Esplanade in Edinburgh itself. And if you stand on the Castle Esplanade, uh, the building, just before you go into the Esplanade itself, on the right-hand side, as you look at the castle, used to be the water reservoir, Actually. But on the back, very back of it, there is this little uh, well, uh, a little kind of drinking fountain, if you like, and it's dedicated to to all of these people. And it has uh, it was uh, Patrick uh, Geddes, who was responsible for a lot of transformation in the city, uh, who wanted it to be created. And it's it's a beautiful thing because it represents. So there's a lot of symbology in it. There are uh, two women's faces in profile, and one is a young, beautiful face, and the other is. I suppose an old and slightly haggard face, uh, and there's a foxglove in the middle and and a snake. So this represents the the two the two sides to the women. I suppose that the these men uh, men and women were very often you know they were healers, they were good people, they were not the evil that they were portrayed to be. Uh, the foxglove represents the the kind of dual use of what they were doing because a lot of these people were of course healers but they're associated with i don't know potions that you know th- and doing nasty things with with the things that they could concoct mm,
0: witchcraft
1: and the foxglove you know for if those some people don't know it can be used in small doses uh, to to knock people out if you need it for an operation or you know to to help you sleep but too much and and it kills and the snake of course uh, f- throughout mythology and symbolism, it's associated both with wisdom, uh, but also, you know, the, the, the evil side, the betrayal side of, of the serpent. So it's this wonderfully beautiful and very symbolic thing uh, that not many people know about. Um, but we're we're very very glad it's there.
0: I remember growing up being told tales of of what we did to witches back in the day, back then. Yes. and this would have been when the the castles obviously where it is at the moment but what what is now prince street gardens was the norlock and that was filled with water yes. mm-hmm. and the story that i got told perhaps you could tell me if this is this is right or not was that they would tie their feet to to stones and throw them in the norlock and if they floated mm-hmm. then that meant that they were a witch and then they were then duly executed but if they sank oh no yes. you weren't but they were dead anyway
1: yeah but you're yeah yeah it's kind of and yes it did happen that they we hear various different versions of it. We call it duking, uh, and in some versions it's that their their hands and wrists are, are bound sometimes to each other so that, you know the, so their wrists are bound to their ankles. There's even stories of their their wrists being nailed to their ankles that, you know that kind of thing and yet they're, they're thrown in It's one of many trials, so there were all kinds of horrific trials that involved. Um, you know starving the these women depriving them of water anything to get a confession basically uh, but the most famous one yet is duking and it was done in the norloch now yeah.
0: wow we were truly terrible to each other back then weren't we
1: weren't we just yeah. and it is <laughs> it always strikes me that you know they often you, you you often hear that these kind of accusations would escalate if there was disease around or something no fingers would be pointed at these people for causing uh, these things uh, and in actual fact, the very people that you should have turned to because, uh, you know, half uh, the vast majority of these people were healers or were just, I don't know, a bit smarter than those people around them or were a little bit odd and eccentric. And, you know, and I, I think,
0: yeah,
1: yeah. yeah I, I think they're the very people that we had the need for and instead they were persecuted and, and we, we we killed them instead.
0: Well, well, it's it's a wonderful insight, a tiny insight into the history of of Edinburgh, which which, as I mentioned yeah. at the start of the podcast, is my home city. I, I love it, and I love hearing about these stories, as 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 dark and as grisly as, as some of them are. Uh, but it's very much what what made Edinburgh the the city that it is. What do you enjoy most about it, Tanya? What do you enjoy about you know as a as a as a storyteller uh, with with market tours? What what do you enjoy? Because I, w- I would imagine that the reaction that you get from, from your guests on these tours, be it by day or be it at night when you're doing the ghost tours, uh, is, it will be, will be fascinating, jaw-dropping.
1: Yeah, it is. And it's, it's, it's difficult to kind of sum up the, the favourite part. I suppose what we love or what I love most about it is uh, we have a motto uh, at Mercat Tours. Uh, and the motto is history is a damn good story. What it needs is a damn good telling. And I think that you know that sums up that our history is, history is stories, and we love sh- I, we love sharing them. And to me, regardless of where you're touring, whether it's a small site, whether it's a city like us, uh, you you're representing not just your site and not just your your company. You're representing Scotland for people, and we're also representing not just the voices of Scotland today, but we're the whole history of Scotland, mm. and it's. It's such a privilege to be able to stand and tell people to, you know, I can be the voice of, you know, Mary Queen of Scots and Adam Smith and, you know, Robert Johnson and Margaret Dixon and, you know, criminals and geniuses and all of that. You know, I I get to tell people their stories and uh, I firmly believe that people have been telling stories for as long as we've had the words to tell them and to be part of that tradition and to to do it live and to actually be seeing people's reactions in the places where these things happened. It's just, it's always moving. And uh, sometimes you see massive reactions and sometimes you see small reactions, but, but you know, that at some point, some, you know, I know that several people will be going and telling the story of Margaret Dixon or you know, uh, but from hearing it, they'll remember, they'll keep spreading the stories. And, you know, so, so I think I maybe see myself as just uh, a curator, if you like, I'm a, you know, and we are as tour guides. That's what we are. We're, we're not curators of objects. We're creators of stories and history, and and passing it on. And it's a, it's a real privilege to be able to do that.
0: Is there has there been a standout moment for you at any point whilst telling a story?
1: I don't. You know, I'd, I'd love to say there is, but I, I. It's always slightly different. You'd think telling these stories would be the same every time, but it, it's not. And there are so many little moments that you know that you remember that, that I don't think there is one standout because you think, oh, that's it, that's a standout moment. And then the next week, somebody has a reaction that you really weren't expecting, you've not heard before, and you think, oh, no, that was a, a standout moment. Uh, but I will always remember uh, telling the Green Lady of Morningside at uh, once and thinking, ah, oh, ha- have they guessed? Have they guessed who, who the son actually is? And uh, And this woman clearly hadn't. And when I said it was Captain Jack Courage Oh but she, she swore very loudly and got vet. You know she was. <laughs> that, that's it. Like, that's it. I've got her. I've got her. The suspense. She was hanging on it. Yeah, you can have little fun moments that you that you'll always remember. But. Uh, you know the tour that you're doing at the time is always the highlight really because you're enjoying it and you're in that moment
0: well tanya thank you so much for for spending time with me today i can sense your enthusiasm your passion and your love for for (laughs) the art of storytelling and uh, thanks for joining us today and sharing your tour guide tales
1: very welcome yes it's been it's been enjoyable yes thank you and yeah you'll need to look out for these things next time grant
0: (laughs) i definitely will You've been listening to the tour guide tales of Tanya Drawn of Edinburgh's market Tours. I don't think I'll walk around the old town again without thinking of just a few of the characters and events that the walls of those beautiful buildings have seen over the years. Join me again next week when I'll be hearing more incredible tales from another tour guide. If you like the show, please, please leave a review wherever you're listening. I'm Grant Stoll and this has been tour guide tales brought to you by Visit Scotland.